Welcome to Military Business School Advocates, where service members and veterans discuss the personal and professional benefits of an MBA. Up next, we speak with Howard Zhao as part of our guest success series. Howard just finished up his first year at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College, located in the Upper Valley of New Hampshire. He was kind enough to join us at MBSA to share how he went from U.S. Army intelligence officer to student at one of the top programs around. Howard originally commissioned as an armor officer from West Point in 2013. He was then assigned as a platoon leader at the 214 Cav Regiment located at Schofield Barracks, Hawaii. He later transitioned into the intelligence field and completed the Counterintelligence Special Agent Officers course. While assigned to the 82nd Airborne at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, he made the decision to leave the military to pursue his MBA. Howard, thanks for joining us. I'd like to start the conversation by asking, what made you leave your military career behind to pursue this goal? Initially, the MBA was like a backup option. There was something I was trying to do in the Army um, that I really wanted to do for a while. The more I talked to people both in the Army and outside the Army, I realized, you know, it sounds like my alternate is really becoming my primary. And that, that shift didn't really, didn't really take too long, maybe a couple of weeks max. Yeah, I would say mid-2020, I think I came across that sit reps of Syracuse guy on like, I would say Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was talking about like the MBA program, the benefits. And I've heard of it before. Uh, I know I had a lot of classmates or peers who got out and went that route. To be honest, I was pretty opposed to doing that. And this was because at the time I was still committed to a 20-year career. Right. I just thought MBA is a dime a dozen. You know, there's no real value added. That was just that was just me not doing any research, just like my stereotypical impression. But I think when I started reading more on up on Sitrep's like his site, you got me more interested. I started doing my own research. Um, talked to a couple friends who I'd gotten out. You know, some of them were in Intel as well, and that made me realize like, hey, like when it comes to, like career flexibility, and then just hitting the reset button, this is this is key. No matter what you did before, whether you're in the army, whether you were a, I don't know, a ballet dancer, <laughs> something non-traditional, this is your chance to pivot into the corporate world um, in, in ways you wouldn't expect. And I found that to be absolutely true. Because I remember when I was applying for those hiring a hero fellowships, uh, I wouldn't even hear back from like, let's say Costco, like just like a, even a cashier position, I wouldn't hear back from. Wow. Unreal. Right. So it made me think like, wow, this isn't good. Mm-hmm. At the time, like in you know, a lot of Intel folks, you go into like GS for contract jobs. So basically they're on USA jobs. And I realized a lot of those positions are made for folks who've done their 20 years, right? Cause they'll have things like Sergeant Majors Academy or, you know, warrant officer, something, something in the like required experiences. And I realized I was like, this isn't really made for someone like me. Yeah. I, I'm going to have eight years, but it's not quite enough for like a higher GS job. Mm. Okay. So the MBA seemed like the perfect uh, way to transition. At times, it can feel like some of us in the military have these golden handcuffs on. What would you say to folks that are serving now who are feeling the pressure to stay in that 20 years? You know, at the risk of sounding slightly cynical or even pessimistic, I think those handcuffs are not gold. They're more like glass or plastic. I wrote like a little article about this a while back. I was saying like, you know, a lot of times people dangle like the carrot in front of you like, hey, that 20 year pension, TRICARE, commissary benefits. Back then, I used to think, yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And now I'm in a point where, I, you know, you, you see multiple perspectives and you think that's not worth anything. Mm-hmm. Anyone who does a basic, what we call like a net present value calculation, MPV calculation, let's say you just map out 20 years, mm-hmm. right? Right. 
Yeah, if you're at year number 19, probably worth it to stick it out another year. Got it. But if you're if you're like me or you're like 10 years or less or even like 15 years or less, I would say, arguably, that pension really, like where where you can go, it, to me, it's not, it's not even comparable. And then just career flexibility alone, that for me was probably one of the biggest, I guess, attractions to it. It's not, not so much like, yeah, the comp package or all that. So that stuff is great, but just career flexibility is something I always really valued. Yeah. I've talked to some other people about it here and my friends who are on the fence about it. We we've had these conversations about like, Hey, I'm at like year 12. I'm like, just, just do it. Like we, I mean, to give you some inspiration, I'm not going to name him, but we had somebody I gr- graduated recently from our school. I think he did like 20, 21 years. Wow. He was like a CAG operator. Like, think like Lieutenant Colonel type do so end up going to business school. So if people say it's too late. I'm like, no, you should probably talk to that guy if you can find him. But like, you should talk to that guy. <laughs> And have a conversation. When you did finally make that decision to pursue an MBA, what kind of initial challenges did you face when preparing your application? Taking the test, especially during COVID, was uh, probably the hardest part of the application for me. Um, so I had about a two-week turnaround to prep for. It was actually the GRE because during COVID, Amazon wasn't doing so well. My old chaplain gave me a GRE book. It was valuable because <laughs> I used it. I would say that was the biggest hurdle. If I if I could actually do it over again, mm-hmm. if I knew I was going to make the decision like earlier, like I would have taken more time for the test. But other than that, like getting the recommendation letters in, writing essays, doing the resume, that took a lot of iteration just to get it to a point where I was comfortable. But I wouldn't say it was nearly as big of a hurdle as getting the test score down because that really is the biggest roadblock for not just like vets but people in general. Yeah, if you come in with like a sub six hundred GMAT. Or like a sub three hundred GRE. I mean, unless you personally shot Bin Laden, no one's gonna care. <laughs> I'm just gonna be honest. Like that long tab isn't gonna mean anything. Like you still have to have some sort of academic aptitude, or at least show you cared enough to study for this. Right. Your essays, your resume isn't gonna make up for that. Yes, and thank you for adding that. There's no getting around the GMAT or the GRE. Trust me, I've tried. Let me ask, what were your expectations prior to joining the program at Tuck? And after being there for a year. Were they accurate? Hmm, I would say my expectation was just this is just based off like social media feeds or whatever I was reading. Sounds like it was just like a giant party. Right. So imagine my surprise when I got there. And I guess each school can be a little different, but I would say Tug has a pretty robust core curriculum. So for a guy who's been out of school for like eight years, uh, it's a bit of a shock. And the first term was a shock for a lot of people, I would say, in terms of how rigorous it was. Because I was spending... So you spend your whole morning in class, what, 8.30 to noon, essentially. Then you have all the recruiting stuff in the afternoon. You have group projects, homework. I probably, so outside of class, I probably would dedicate anywhere from four to six hours a day just on classwork, and that's on top of the recruiting and classroom attendance. Uh, I was coming from a background, obviously, where I needed to learn things about business. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it would have been different if I was like someone who was sponsored by a company to attend where I didn't have the pressure of recruiting or having to learn business fundamentals. I can guess a lot of people leaving the military have already started families. What kind of things did you have to consider as you transitioned from the military to your program? Family considerations. I, I am married. Um, I guess consideration, the main consideration was like employment for my, for my wife, but the, the community here was pretty tight knit. Like uh, the moment I get accepted, the, uh, the partners club reached out to my partner you know, to introduce themselves, answer questions. And 
that's how she found out about you know the job opportunities here even though it's a pretty remote area so that part was taken care of um in terms of like housing situation that was just talking to like current students talking to the other vets um especially those who had like gi bill then that way you kind of know like what you can afford and i don't i think i think that stuff wasn't wasn't too big of a uh too big too big of a concern to be honest um in terms of leave i took because of covid and i guess deployment i had saved up a lot of leave i'm gonna say i had like maybe like a hundred some days of leave. So after my um, fellowship ended, I just, I just went on terminal leave. Okay. And that, that took me up until when I arrived at school. So that, that's something I would recommend to just get that downtime. Cause the biggest piece of advice I got was, Hey, just relax during the summer. A lot of people are trying to figure out like, Oh, should I learn how to case? Should I learn how to like answer technical questions for banking? You, you have plenty of time for that when you get here, like you're going to burn out if you try to start too soon. Mm. Just, just kind of trust the process and go with it. I think that was valuable for me coming in fresh. Yeah, of course. And I'm sure anyone listening can relate to that. Can you tell us a little bit more about your fellowship at Deloitte? It was a 12-week fellowship through Hiring Their Heroes. Something I would really, really recommend uh, for those for those looking to do a CSP. I think that one is good, in, not just in terms of duration, but the company's available. Okay. I don't know what consulting companies are doing it now. I know Deloitte was the main one that was doing it when I was there. Um, but they also have things like Abbott's, so like a medical company. The Amazon's a big one. Turns out not a lot of people took the offer from Amazon because being an ops or area manager is just ridiculously tiring and the hours aren't good. Mm. I'm just going to be honest here for those considering it. Yeah. Um, let's see. We had we had some, some more like niche startup type companies or smaller tech companies like Kin and Carta was a company I would have taken if I didn't have Deloitte. Really cool tech company out of um, Chicago. They do like Scrum and Agile. Good good skills. So you can get some sort of certifications from them too. Lots of good options. Then you have the other ones like First Command, which highly recommend no one ever do. So I'm just being really transparent here. It's kind of a predatory company in my mind, just like Northwest Mutual. Um, but that's just my opinion. Okay. Let's see. Um, Sales Platoon was another one. Wouldn't recommend it either. But... Yeah, but there were some really good ones on the docket. You know what? I appreciate your honesty, and that's part of the reason why we decided to create Military Business School Advocates is to get this feedback from people like yourself to share with others. Did you consider the SkillBridge program at all? I, I knew about it, but, you know, the briefings I got about it, they seemed like it was focused more on, like, kind of, like, apprenticeships or, like, at least at Fort Bragg. I can't really speak for any other bases. Like, I remember when they briefed it, person's like, you want to be a welder, a plumber, a mechanic. If that's what you want to do, that's perfect. But it's a little bit limiting. Like if you want to, if someone to say, Hey, I want to be a consultant or I want to be a banker, Mm -hmm. like the most they're going to get with that one is they're going to recommend them to like first command. And that's it. Now I've heard about people making their own. I've heard good experiences about those. Yeah. Um, That really, that really depends on how well you network and how knowledgeable you are about what's out there. For a lot of vets, I'd imagine that's like a, a knowledge gap that exists. So that's, that's part of the reason I really recommend HOH. Yeah, thank you for the recommendation. We'll go ahead and put a link to Hire Our Heroes in the show notes so anyone listening now can go check them out. This is also a topic that we plan to expand on in future podcasts. Now, did you receive any mentorship or assistance prior to applying for any schools? Yeah, so I did I did have a service to schools mentor, but at the time... Uh, Duke was my number one, so they assigned me someone to Duke, and he's he's he was good. He was he's he's doing well himself, but 
Uh, ultimately, like after I got that, I changed my mind to having Tuck as my number one. Mm-hmm. So what helped me there was just talking to the vets here at Tuck. Um, well, actually, one of my West Point classmates was was here at the time. He helped me a lot in terms of like just honest advice, what the culture's like, you know, essays, resume, you know, interview, all that good stuff. So that that's incredibly valuable, and actually, probably one of the main reasons I pick pick Tuck over the other schools. If we're going to talk about why people pick business school overall, right? It is for it is for the strength of your network. That's probably that's probably one of the most legitimate reasons to pick a business school. Mm-hmm. And if I had to come up with an equation for it, I would come up with two di- two different variables. First one is obviously size, right? So class size, how, how long the school has been around, all that plays into it. The second part is willingness to engage and willingness to connect. So even if your class size is a thousand, but people aren't willing to pick up a phone, your network is really not that strong. So for me, and this is sounds like an advertisement for Tuck. It's not meant to be. This could be any school you have a good connection with. But I felt like, yeah, smaller class size of 300 or less, but never had anyone turn me down on LinkedIn or for a phone call or chat. They're always willing to, you know, just talk to me and just give me good feedback. Something that I thought was really cool was before I even got, I think before I even like came to school or got accepted, I was helping out this, this smaller nonprofit with like fundraising, just come up fundraising strategy. And I reached out to someone at the Center of Business Government Society here at Tug. They do things like, like as, as the name implies, right? Like maybe like nonprofit type work, stuff related to government. They actually connect me with a, like a more of a senior professor here who used to work, who's like a founding member of Bridgespan. Bridgespan is like a very prestigious nonprofit consulting group. It's an offshoot of Bain, actually. And um, she actually just broke it down like, hey, here's what I think you should do. She broke it down like a consultant would mm-hmm. with all her experience and knowledge. It was really valuable. I thought, wow, this is somebody who doesn't know who I am. We've never met, but they're willing to take time to help out. Hmm. So to me, that was actually, I spoke volumes. And I think that's something that's important. You have to feel some sort of connection to the school and the people you're going to. Yeah, that makes sense. And it actually reminded me of a phrase that keeps popping up in my life. Your net work is your net worth. I didn't make it up, but maybe you've heard it. Yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've heard that. It, it certainly applies to not just getting into school, but also like landing your future job as well. The recruiting part is, is very network heavy. Do you currently serve in a mentorship program now, either undergraduate or graduate? Both at this point. Um, so services schools is like the main one I do outside of Tuck. So I do that for both MBA candidates as well as undergrad uh, folks. Um, I would say within school, so starting this year, I'll be a consulting club mentor. Um, but I would say unofficially because the network, like the Tuck Network, like people here have undergrad mentees as well. So recently, I think one of my friends reached out with an ask of like, hey, like I have an undergrad mentee here at Dartmouth who's going to got an interview at McKenzie and she would like someone to kind of help her case. So we're like, yeah, sure. So I'll help out with that. So that's more like an unofficial ad hoc capacity. But um, overall, I would say both, probably more on the MBA side now nowadays. So on to the interview after the application. What was your experience like? It's a little different for each school, um, but I would say the similarities, pretty much all of them were going to ask you like, hey, tell me about yourself slash walk me through your resume. It's a very common one. I think it serves two purposes. One's to kind of get to know you a little better. And then other two, other one is kind of see how you communicate. That's just my thought process on it. Mm. So that's a common one. The other one's going to be like, why this school? Why MBA? Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this is like general advice that you, you can probably easily find online as well. So I say those are probably the commonalities. 
you may or may not get a strengths or weaknesses question. I don't know how common that is these days. Uh, it really depends on your interviewer. Um, might get like a, what's your proudest achievement? What's your biggest failure? But I would say mostly typical interview questions. Most of the stuff is a variation of something I feel like you would have prepared for. Okay. About how long was each interview? And are these one-on-one or in groups? For me, they were all one-on-one. 45 minutes, upwards of an hour, but I would say about 45 minutes. Mine are all through Zoom. Um, I think it was this, I think it will be this way this year as well for a lot of, for most schools. I think I had a pretty good experience overall. Like I felt like my tuck one felt the best. It felt like the most relaxed or natural per se. Um, but a lot of it's just gonna depend on like how you, how you connect to the interview or like how you answer the questions, so on and so forth. You mentioned that you were walking into this program with little business experience. I wonder what the curriculum was like for you. Challenging, fun, stimulating? Yeah, definitely very school to school. Just just me talking to some of my friends. But I would say that the ones that are probably going to be common through all of them. They're going to have some sort of basic accounting course, probably some sort of basic managerial econ course, some sort of strategy course, maybe some sort of data analytics course, mm-hmm. uh, probably some sort of marketing course. Like those are some sort of finance course or capital markets type course. Those are pretty common. For us, I remember our first term, we, the classes I found probably most valuable. Manager, any sort of econ class, A, I'm really interested in the subject, and B, I thought in terms of just learning, just learning the principles and fundamentals, what was very valuable, also for consulting and recruiting. Okay. Uh, econ and accounting, those, those merge well together. Because, I mean, going into business school, I didn't know how to calculate profit, I don't expect most vets to know how to calculate profit. So, and just all the nuances going into that, I felt like those courses were good for. Um, strategy, strategy, marketing, like those are good for learning tech terminology, like learning some like business cases. And on that note, I would say a lot of business schools, including Tuck, are very case-centric, some more so than others. I would say ours is more of a, if I'm going to say it, this is not like the school stance. I think it's more of a soft case method in a sense where they use it when it makes sense. So for those who don't know, like case method is essentially you read like a, almost like a story, like a business case. And there's like lessons or takeaways from that. It's not really necessarily outlined in the case itself, um, but that's, that's what you discuss in class. And that's where the discussion becomes valuable. So for some things like, let's say accounting or analytics, right? Yeah, we had cases per se, but those were really just more like longer homework problems, like more like the background to a, a homework problem. Because to me, it does like accounting, you just need enough. If you want to know how a balance sheet work, I don't, I don't think it's something where it's like, Howard, what do you think? What do you think uh, cost a good soul should go? No, no, no. It goes in one place for a reason, right? Right. <laughs> but I would say for strategy, like for those types of classes, case studies are great. Because that's, that's where you're really like thinking, like, why is the business doing this? Like, what's the reasoning behind it? I, I think those are, those are really good and just helping you contextualize things in the business sense. So over the summer, you completed an internship with McKinsey. What was that like? Yeah, I recently finished up. It, it was 10 weeks. I would say for most consulting internships, it's, it's 10 weeks. I was down in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spent, spent the whole summer there. Did some travel between there and Atlanta for the project I was working on. And um, yeah, it culminated with a full-time offer. Nice. For a lot of for a lot of the internships, like once you get the internship, mm-hmm. yeah, the offer is not necessarily official, like the full-time return offer. I mean, but it's pretty much guaranteed for a lot of a lot of firms. 
And that's something we know. Okay. So that's why it's like, hey, once you get the internship, you can kind of breathe a sigh of relief, especially if you're at one of the firms where they even tell you like, hey, like we'll give you the official offer to return once you finish. Um, unless you do something unethical <laughs> or something just absolutely ridiculous, you're going to get a return offer. So that's why, you know, consulting recruiting happens pretty early. Same with banking. So in essentially early January, you know, if you had an internship and therefore, you know, hey, if this is what you really want to do, you're, you're done recruiting. That's why that's that's something that's good about it. Some people traveled every week. Some people were remote their whole summer. I would say for McKinsey, I can't really speak on the other ones. because I'm not sure about their policy. You can definitely put in like a preference with what we call like your professional development manager, your PDM, just letting them know like, hey, like what your travel preference is, because they understand if you have family, like if you just had a newborn, like totally understandable. Right. Um, you can also say there's certain industries I don't want to work in. So I know McKinsey doesn't do any work with tobacco. That's like their their no go area. Like if you say, like, look, I refuse to work with pharma or I refuse to work with oil and gas, that part will get respected. Can you let us in a little bit on the work-life balance during your internship? I mean, were the hours rough? For those folks who are like looking into consulting and banking, this is me like when I was doing my preliminary research as well. I heard like, yeah, you're going to work like 80-hour weeks, 100-hour weeks. I think for banking, that part's kind of hard to break away from, just kind of based on the nature of deals and whatnot, the weekend work and all that. For consulting, I think it certainly can be true. Uh, I definitely know people who work like 3 in the morning. Mm-hmm pretty regularly. So can't say it's false, but I would really say it depends on, it's, it's not a monolithic entity. Let me, I will just preface it with that, right? So within consulting, you have multiple industries, which we, we would call like verticals and you have like functions or practices, which we call horizontals. And they basically have a place where they, where they intersect. So to give like an easy example, let's say you want to do something with natural resources, that would be your vertical. And then you want to do something with operations. That's your that's your um, horizontal, right? So operations and natural resources, all right? That can be a certain way versus, let's say, marketing and sales and natural resources. That could be completely, that's going to be probably diff- probably pretty different. So where I was at was my vertical is essentially, you can think of it as like tech and my horizontal was operations. And within it, there's like sub niches of like operations. So mine was manufacturing and supply chain. Um, and that's going to be a different culture than, let's say, pharmaceuticals, which I would say is probably known to be pretty rigorous. That's probably where you can get into the 2, 3 a.m. like work nights. But, hey, you can also have ones that are more chill than that. So it's a really your mileage may vary type of experience. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's going to depend on, A, your team and B, your client, not necessarily in that order. What were some of the things that you noticed during the recruiting process? What was it like? Consulting and banking interviews come first, like early January. Certain consulting firms will go first, like the first week of January. Others will go maybe like the second week of January. And after that, it might be like general management. So general management is another popular option for vets. It would think of it as like, like a leadership development program, like a pipeline, right? Okay. So this is something a lot of vets are familiar with. It's kind of like that where it's like, all right, for example, have you heard of Danaher? They, they do a conglomerate things, right? Like water sanitation, medical, I think instruments, so on and so forth. Um, their business model is they, they acquire a lot of like companies. I think in many ways they turn them around using like a, a, their form of lean, which is like Danaher business systems. But essentially they have a leadership development program that's very well known, very popular. And essentially the pipeline is in roughly six years, you would make VP out of like an MBA program. And they recruit pretty heavily out of MBA programs. Wow. 
Um, other other companies, good companies do the same, like Corning, Corning Glass. So they make like telescopes, like medical device type glass. I want to say their pipeline is four years. Don't don't quote me on it. Somewhere around there. I think Vanguard, Vanguard, there's something like that as well. So you have those options. They, they tend to come, I want to say, mid to later January for their interviews. And then tech is later and then like startups and whatnot come like after that. So the reason I bring up the, the timeline is generally speaking, career services say, hey, once you accept an offer for an internship, you have to cancel the rest of it. There's a lot of people on the wait list to get interviewed. So once you come off, someone who actually wants a shot at that company can, can get the slot. So it basically don't screw your buddy over, right? Right. McKinsey was my, my number one choice. And once I got that one, I canceled all my interviews. Yeah, I was curious to see how the interviews would go for like other companies like Strategy and or whatever. But to be honest, it, it was done. Did you get an opportunity to check out any clubs or groups on campus? You know, as a first year, I would say Consulting Club and Veterans Club were my two biggest ones. Consulting Club being like the professional club and Veterans Club, professional club too. But this was to really help out like other vets, you know, go, go to certain events, networking events, so on and so forth. It's more of like a pay it forward, which is really, which is really enjoyable, by the way. Mm-hmm. We had Asia Business Club. That one was fun. That's more like a fun club, like, you know, like Lunar New Year's or cultural events, like the Wally, like there's like food, there's celebrations. You can, you can do that as well. I know a lot of people do hockey here. That's a big one. Or I, I wanted to do rugby, but I mean, we're we're in the we're in New England. Uh, the season's a little short, and to be quite frank, with recruiting going on, it just wasn't going to happen. So that was really mainly I feel like the second year students uh, having fun with that one. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of different options. I know there's like probably got, I think it's like a wine and cheese club. A lot of business schools have it. We have like a Glen Tuck Society, which is like a whiskey tasting club. Like there's like fun ones. So you'll, you'll probably find something you enjoy. You had me at whiskey. What are some of the backgrounds of people in your class to include vets? I want to say our class is close to 50% like each men and women. It's, it's roughly 50-50, I want to say. For, for vets, we're about 5%. So we have, what, 15, 16 vets in my class. Class size is just under 300. So roughly... Roughly 5%. I think 5% is a pretty typical number for a lot of uh, business schools as well. Um, in terms of like ethnic breakdown, I really don't know, to be honest. But it's, it's a pretty diverse class, I can tell you that. I think you'll enjoy the next set of questions. First, are you currently involved in any personal business projects to include startups or nonprofits? Personal business projects? No, not anymore. I was helping with a nonprofit um, last year. Here's a good one. What military experience or skills have helped you during your transition and what, if any, have hindered you? I would say in terms of like skills that help, those would be mainly soft skills. Like, yeah, we use PowerPoint Excel in the military, but it's really nowhere near the level that our civilian peers use it. So I would say in terms of communication, just being able to structure things like top down communication, that probably helped the most. Um, my, like I said, my last job was as a G2 targeting officer, did interact with like the CG and like the staff a lot. So just being able to like be concise and communicate clearly was important. I would say there's natural gaps. Like for example, I, I showed up the business school, I didn't know any Excel shortcuts. So it's probably less efficient than my classmates, like PowerPoint, not nearly as good as they were, but those are things that you can, you can easily catch up on. So I wouldn't say skills that hinder now. If you let me, if you allow me a quick second, go on and go off on a quick soapbox. Yeah, please. In terms of culture, bringing it over, 
you hear about a lot of vets having difficulty transitioning. I think part of it, I mean, yeah, you can say like there's like maybe societies that fall for some of it. But the other big part of it is lack of self-awareness. Mm. Well, I would say is when you when you leave the military, you're trying to you are representing the vet community for better or for worse. I think it's really your responsibility. And this is me just preaching, but like to really do that vet community a good service. Right. Like you should not show up to like a new place and, and talk about putting warheads on foreheads. It's probably not a good conversation starter. I mean, if you're with other vets, have at it. We have a separate vets chat for a reason. <laughs> you, you know, you get what I'm saying, right? So you want to highlight the good things of being a vet, like teamwork, leadership, grace under pressure, resilience, right? Those are good things you want to highlight. You don't want to highlight like this whole, I'm full of caffeine and hate stereotype. I call people snowflakes. Nobody wants that. Like nobody, I wouldn't want to work with somebody like that on the team. Talking about beating up people or... I actually had, we actually had a vet who said something along those lines and had a civilian classmate ask me like, is this, is this how all you guys feel? Like, just seriously, I'm curious. I'm like, no, no, that's not how, mm-hmm. if, if that's how they represent it, it's not true. That's a stereotype that we want to try to overcome, I believe. That is such an important idea as vets transition from the military to civilian life, right? You're in a foreign environment and you need to adapt. What would you say to service members who are on the fence about pursuing an MBA right now? Yeah, I would say there's no right or wrong answer. Like I would, the MBA is not necessarily the best choice for everybody because if you if you really are enjoying your time in service, this is what you want to do. I, w- I will never try to like convince you to get out, right? But for folks who are like, I don't love it anymore, right? Like I don't feel I don't have the same sense of purpose. Uh, maybe we stop deploying, or it's just like, no, I'm so I'm sick of these garrison tasks. Like whatever your story is, right? If you're at that point, I would I would want to ask this question, like, what are your actual priorities? What what matters to you? Because when I asked myself that, honestly, it was I do want some sort of like career flexibility. I want some sort of like financial stability for myself and my family. That is important. Career flexibility is probably the honestly the biggest one, because at that point, like you, you can do you can pursue things you, you really want to do. Right. And I, I think the MBA it's not just you going into like investment banking. That's that was my stereotype before. I thought like, oh, it's a bunch of sharp elbowed people that go to like Wall Street. No, like you want to work at a nonprofit? Sure. You want to work in federal consulting? Georgetown's a great school for it. There are a lot of other top schools. You can pursue your passion. Um, I know somebody who's now working at the Secret Service as like a consultant. Seems like a pretty sweet gig. So it just just it keeps your options pretty flexible. Um, you want to do tech. Whatever, whatever the case may be, you want to do venture capital, private equity, it's on the table. So that flexibility to me was pretty crucial. Yeah, and it's just like where you see yourself in 20 years. Like, do you see yourself as a, I don't know, like a, like a field grade, as like a senior NCO or senior warrant? Or do you see yourself like, I don't know, at a steer co or like in, some, in the C-suite? Whatever, the, whatever your aspirations are, which one appeals to you more? And you just have to be honest with yourself. Yeah. Right. There's there's going to be a lot of folks who try to dissuade you in the military. Mm-hmm. I definitely ran into that. That's pretty normal, honestly. Right. Because you got to think those are the same people who've been in this whole time. They don't know another career. So why would I take advice on leaving the military from someone who's never been on the outside? Howard, that's great advice. It's also the reason why we prioritize discovering the reasons why veterans would consider pursuing this goal. This is a life altering decision that should be taken seriously. It's important to have the right mindset before walking into something like this. You know, on that point, that's a, that's a really good point. It's like, 
business getting in, like obviously it's something to celebrate, right? Trust me, I was stoked when I found out I, I got in, but um, it's it's actually really the beginning of that journey. Okay. Because like once you get here, it, I feel like things change. Like when, before I went to business school, I thought like, yeah, I'd be content with like a, like a chill post MBA job. And then like, once you get here, the energy is different, mm. right? Like people are, you know, goals, goal oriented, they're ambitious, right? My, my goals realigned a little bit as well, if I'm going to be honest. I think the wrong mentality is like, oh yeah, I got in. Right. I know a lot of people probably, look, I'm, I'm just trying to get in. Just, I don't care. But like, just because you have a good school on your resume doesn't mean you get the jobs you want. I've seen plenty of people flop out multiple schools because they kind of had that mentality where it's like, I'm at this X, Y, and Z top school. Every company is going to want me. I'm like, not with that attitude. You still got to earn your keep at that point. All right. We are reaching the end here. Final thoughts. What do you want readers, listeners to know about you? And I'll add on to that. Where do you want to be? Where can you imagine yourself in the near future? Ooh, so I guess starting with the last question, where do I want to be? That is that is tricky. Um because now that I have a little bit of perspective, I know if you asked me when I was 17 where I wanted to be, I was like, I want to do 20 some years in the army, right? So obviously that didn't happen. So I'm a little hesitant to say where exactly. Um, now that I'm going to consulting, it's I'll, I'll take the same approach I took with the army. If I love it, I will stay, right? If I find it rewarding, I'm still learning, which I'm sure I'll keep learning, I will stay. Okay. If it gets to a point where I'm like, you know what, like there's something that's more appealing to me like a different job, whatever the, whatever it may be. Maybe it's better for family life. Mm-hmm. I'll take that as well. And that's a career flexibility you have. So that that's to answer that part of the question. What I want people to know about me, um, I'm a, honestly, I'm a pretty average guy. It's not There's nothing that, that happened in this process I did that was extraordinary by any means. So what I do want like people listening to know is like, you should not count yourself out. Don't think like just because you weren't X, Y, and Z in the military or, oh, shoot, I, I didn't go to like, this type of undergrad or my GPA was this. Don't, don't count yourself out. Like you got to stick to the basis, crush your test score, mm-hmm. you know, really do research, really, really research your schools because they can tell when you're BSing. So research your schools and it's going to shine in your essays and your interview. Have people, have people help you out with your resume and your, um, in your essays as well, right? Practice the interviews, like take it seriously. Use it, learn to use a star format for the interview. When you tell your stories, I would say iteration is key here. If you can get it right on the first try, congratulations. Like, but you're in the minority. Most people, even people who are very well spoken, had to iterate quite a bit to get to that point. So don't don't be afraid of repetition. I went through my resume, I edited I think at least 20 some times with different people looking at it. Oh gosh. And that's probably like on the lower end. <laughs> so just <laughs> keep that in mind. Wow. Well, Howard, thanks for sharing your MBA journey with us. I think you provided a good start for those that may want to learn more about the opportunities that come with an MBA. Tuck sounds like a phenomenal program, and I'm sure you'll make the most of your time at McKenzie. Congratulations, and we'll talk to you soon. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider helping us grow by sharing this podcast and joining us on social media. If you or someone you know would like to become a guest on our show, please see our show notes for ways to contact us. Thank you, 